You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get our Bibles out. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and the title of my message tonight is, well, as the guest speaker, I I should probably give it a proper title. It's uh, Ambassadors for Christ, but I could call it Kissing Lizards, (laughs) Kissing Lizards. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll read from verse 18 down through the end of the chapter, But before we do, uh, would you join me in prayer? And let's ask for the Lord to bless our Bible study. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we would be lost without it. We thank you, Lord, that it continually challenges us. It encourages us. Lord, it gets us back on the right path when we steer away. Lord, we have a heart that's prone to wander. And we're so thankful for your word, how how it guides us back between the white lines of your will. It encourages us and it helps us. And tonight, Lord, we look again to your word for direction and for guidance. Please speak to our hearts, Lord, as we go through your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses to them. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In the desert of Arizona, north of Tucson, is the site of an interesting environmental research project. There sits a sealed terrarium the size of two and a half football fields, It covers more than three acres. The enclosure is more airtight than the International Space Station. The compound is known as Biosphere 2. Inside the glass structure, scientists have simulated five of Earth's ecosystems. The desert, the ocean, the marsh, the savanna, and the rainforest. This dome is totally self-contained. And it recycles its own air and food and water and waste. Today, Biosphere 2 is an earth science laboratory. But in the early 1990s, it was an experiment. You see, eight scientists entered this glass bubble in 1991, emerging two years later in 1993. These eight people spent those two years together with no physical contact with other people or with the outside world. For the scientific community, Biosphere 2 has been a novel experiment. But sadly, 
for many Christians, Biosphere 2 is their reality. They've been living in a self-contained, isolated dome for years. Christians, even the born-again type, are notorious for constructing artificial environments where they conceal themselves off from the outside world. All our friends are Christians. All our activities are at church or with church members. We work and live around non-Christians, but we keep our contact to a minimum. We recycle relationships and socially interact with the same people over and over and over again. For some of us, we have very little time to reach out to those who need us most. Now, don't misunderstand. I pastor a church, and I'm all for fellowship, but I'll live with you Christians forever. There is a world that, out there that will spend an eternity on the lake of fire if we don't get them the gospel. In our text, we learn that God has not only reconciled us to himself, but he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He calls us ambassadors for Christ. If you've been wondering what your ministry is, look no further. Each of us has been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the glorious task of placing the hand of men into the hand of God. Of leading broken, empty, shipwrecked, wandering souls into a meaningful relationship with their Savior. This word translated reconciliation, it means to exchange. It's the Greek word for exchanging coins. We as Christians are to be exchange agents. Our job is to arrange swaps, royal robes for sinful rags, forgiveness for fear, fulfillment for frustration, love for loneliness, hope for hollowness, peace for pain. Our job is to get the good news to those who need it most. Realize God created human beings for fellowship with him. He wants a close relationship with you and me and every other human being you've met. In the Garden of Eden, the first man and woman enjoyed just that. Adam and Eve, they knew God. The Bible says God walked with them in the cool of the day. Like best friends taking a walk, living life together. This is the kind of relationship that Adam and Eve experienced with God. Imagine having the God of the universe as your BFF. Your walking and talking partner. Someone you spend time with and share your heart with. Imagine that kind of a relationship with God. Yet this friendship, this fellowship didn't last forever. For Adam and Eve made a terrible choice. They cozied up to the serpent and they rebelled against their creator. They believed the lie that they could know more and be happier and live better without God than they could with him. The heavens and the earth still shudder at their decision. Like a rock thrown into the lake, that decision, that splash still reverberates. Ripples keep emanating from that tragic decision. Someone has referred to the first sin as the Adam bomb. That's right. Adam and Eve bombed, all right. They blew it big time. 
life before they sinned was harmony and paradise. Sadly, the fallout of their rebellion is still wreaking havoc in the world today. Just look at our world. Look at the mess we've made. Crumbling marriages and broken homes and violence in our schools and streets, racial tensions, the hungry and the homeless, conflicts brewing all over the world. And the reason for it all can be traced back to the decision made in the garden. Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God. They struck out on their own. They decided to do life their own way. The Bible calls their independence sin. Like a boat tied to the dock, they cut anchor and they began to drift. And today the entire Adam's family, Adam and Eve and all their descendants... That's right, have been lost at sea forever. But what do you do with rebellious kids? Do you wash your hands of them and let them get what they deserve? Do you turn your back on them and make them figure it out on their own? Do you let them flounder for a while until they've learned their lesson? Well, God went on an elaborate rescue mission. With great passion, with determination, God made it his goal to reconcile his broken relationship with us. He set out to restore us to himself and to renew our friendship. Here in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul states, all things are of God. That's a pretty inclusive statement. All things are of God. In other words, God had a blank slate. He had an empty canvas on which to work this miracle of redemption. God can do anything. So who will he call? What tool will he use? What means will he employ to save us? How will God repair this breach and remove this wedge? Paul tells us in verse 18 that he has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God reconciles us. He puts us back on friendly terms with him through Jesus. From the beginning, God warned us the wages of sin is death. God told Adam if he ate of the forbidden fruit, he would surely die. And die he did. Physically, he died later, but spiritually, he died the instant he sinned. Yet God sent Jesus into this world to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus was born of a virgin, bypassing inherited sin. He lived a perfect life, not once guilty of a merited sin. Jesus was sinless in every way. And thus, verse 21, For he, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Having no sin himself, Jesus could make amends for our sin. And on the cross, Jesus took every grimy act done in every slimy place. And God thrust that sin on Jesus' innocent shoulders. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. He was made sin who knew no sin so that we could become the rightness of God. At Calvary, God made the grand swap. Jesus took all our twistedness to give us his rightness. And when I give my life to Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, inside 
God transforms. He gives us his nature to love and to obey. We become new creations in Christ. In heaven, God pardons us. He blots out our sin and he credits to us his virtue. We're cleared of all our guilt. Sin twists and warps, but there's none of that in Jesus. He is righteous in every way. And in him, we get this righteousness, a right heart and a right standing before God that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the promise to us. Notice our text doesn't say that God is the one who needs to be reconciled to us. It's always vice versa. We're the ones who need to be reconciled to God. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You see, God has already buried the hatchet. God isn't angry with us. His fists aren't clenched. His arms are open. His nail-scarred hands are always reaching out. There's no reluctance in God's acceptance. His willingness to forgive was decided on the cross long before we rebelled. All that had to be done for us to be forgiven was fulfilled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Some people assume that God is a condemning God. That he loves to stoke the flames of hell with human kindling. Not so. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Did you hear that? Not imputing our trespasses? Do you realize what that means? God no longer imputes sin. He no longer keeps score. God is no longer tallying up our sins. At the cross, God stopped once and for all, looking us over for flaws. He isn't scrutinizing us to see if we measure up. Now he's willing to forgive us and accept us for his son's sake. The only question left is, will we bow to Jesus? We can do nothing to deserve God's favor, but to receive it, we have to submit our lives to his son. You remember the story that Jesus told of the boy who wasted away his dad's inheritance, who parted it all away? We call it the story of the prodigal son. The real star in the story is the forgiving father. You remember the story, though. The boy finally decided to return home and see if he could sign on as one of his father's hired hands. Surely he could do better in his father's home than he could out on his own. And instead of extracting a payback, instead of imposing a long probation or making the boy prove his sincerity... This dad was so extravagant. He ran to the boy. He forgave him. He fell on his neck and kissed him. He welcomed him home and orchestrated a celebration. Everyone was happy that the boy had come home. Everyone except the fatted calf, I suppose. (laughs) And God's forgiveness for us is just as lavish. All we have to do is come home. The father's waiting on us. You turn the corner and he'll run to meet you. The father is there. He wants us to come to Jesus and receive. Our tendency is to withhold forgiveness, isn't it? We we like to withhold forgiveness at least long enough to watch the offender squirm a little bit. But this isn't how God thinks. He forgives freely and extravagantly. 
And this is how we need to represent him to others. For according to our text, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. This is what God is doing in our world today. God is reconciling lost sinners to himself. This is his task. This is his priority. And he wants to use you and me to do so. I've heard it said, if a man has a soul, and he has, and if that soul can be won or lost for eternity, and it can, then the most important thing in the world is to bring that man to Jesus Christ. Friends, this is our ministry. Put verses 19 and 20 together and they read, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now God is in us pleading and imploring for people to be reconciled. Tori Matthews once worked for the Southern California Humane Society. One day she got a frantic call from a child whose pet iguana had drowned. A dog had frightened the iguana up a tree. He climbed out on a limb and he'd fallen into the swimming pool. Well, when Officer Matthews arrived on the scene, the little boy was beside the pool crying as his pet lizard lay motionless under the water. Well, Tori, she dove into the pool and she emerged with the lifeless body of this iguana. She thought, well, you resuscitate a person? A dog? Why not an iguana? And so she locked lips with a lizard. And she was able to revive the boy's pet iguana. Afterwards, Tori said to a reporter, it was a pretty ugly animal to kiss, but the last thing I wanted to do was to tell this little boy his iguana had died. You know, there are people in your world just as ugly and nasty and scaly and repugnant as an iguana. Their lifestyle, their attitude stands for everything that you as a Christian oppose. Extending compassion and love to them would be like locking lips with a lizard. But if the last thing Tori Matthews wanted to do was to tell a little boy that his pet had died, think of what it'll be like for us to have to tell the God of the universe that the people he loved, the folks Jesus died to reconcile, drowned because we were afraid to get close to them. We've been called by God to kiss some lizards. Lizard kissing is the ministry of reconciliation. Notice verse 20. Paul refers to us as ambassadors for Christ. And with the time I have left, this is where I'd like to camp out. What does it mean to be an ambassador? You see, an ambassador is a spokesman for his homeland who's living in a foreign land. He represents the interests of home in the context of his surrounding culture. And you are an ambassador. You're a spokesman or a spokeswoman for Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we're serving in a foreign post. We're representing the will of our king. The church is an embassy, and we are divine diplomats. And realize two traits make for a good ambassador. First, he represents only the will of his sovereign. 
When he speaks, it isn't laced with his own personal opinions. He says only what the king would want him to say. And second, he tries to relate to the people to whom he's been sent. When Paul says God is in the Christian pleading with men, this word pleading means to come alongside someone, to slip into their shoes. God does more than just shout to people to toe the line. He identifies with their struggles. He empathizes with our weaknesses. He takes the time to understand and relate to us. This is the reason Jesus left his throne in heaven and joined the human race. He wanted to taste our plight. When Jesus spoke, it was only the words the Father gave him to say. But you can bet those words were always couched in ways that appealed to hungry hearts, that stirred up an interest in the minds of his listeners. You see, the job of an ambassador is not just to represent heaven. It's more than uttering cold, matter-of-fact declarations. A good ambassador packages the will of heaven to appeal to men. He or she relates to the culture around them and makes the message clear and attractive. An ambassador presents the truth, but in ways that increase its likelihood to be accepted. The Saudi Arabian ambassador, he always, he looks slick and polished. He looks like an American. He speaks like an American. Forget the fez. When he comes to America, he takes off his robes. He wears a Brooks Brothers suit. He looks like a Western diplomat, not a nomad off a camel. His image is designed to encourage his listeners to buy into his rhetoric. A good ambassador is shrewd. He knows his audience. And he deliberately tries to appeal to its tastes and its needs and its logic. And this was Paul's strategy in sharing the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, he tells us, To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win the Jews to those who are without law as without law, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul built bridges. Rather than stay in his bubble, he built bridges. He looked for ways to identify with the people around him. While with his Jewish friends, he talked the Torah. He'd eat kosher foods. With the Gentiles, he'd discuss Greek philosophy or he'd jaw about the latest Olympic games. Paul wasn't deceitful. He was just flexible. He knew his audience and he was always trying to find common ground. Paul was willing to adjust his interests to reach his audience. You know, too often we as Christians focus on the differences between believers and unbelievers. As if there were no commonalities. As if we and unbelievers occupied two different planets. Oh, it's true, our spiritual state with the person who doesn't know Jesus is as different than night and day. But we both have a mortgage to pay. We have a car that probably needs to be repaired. We have a yard that needs to be mowed, especially after all this rain. I can promise you that. We have a less than perfect marriage we're working on. We get sick. We have problems. We have the same similarities. We live the same life that they do. In your reaction with interactions with people, do you focus on the similarities and try to build bridges, relationships that ultimately yield opportunities to explain your differences? 
See, Paul was always looking for a shared interest, a commonality around which he could develop a friendship. Paul tried to blend in so that he could speak up. If he could relate to folks culturally, then he could reach them spiritually. Over the 41 years now that I've been a Christian, I've noticed it's usually the biker who wins the biker to Christ. Have you noticed that? It's usually the business manager who wins the business manager. It's the electrician who wins the electrician. It's the full-time mom who wins the full-time mom. It doesn't have to occur that way, but often it does. You know, it's odd. We Christians, we're quick to fly to other countries to witness for Jesus. And oh, we're called to do that. We should do that. But the folks we're most likely to reach are those closest to us. The guy down the street with whom we have the most in common. Realize an ambassador's job most closely parallels the job of an interpreter. Obviously, an interpreter has to be fluent in two languages. The language of the speaker and the language of the listener. If he's deficient in one language or the other, the communication between the two parties gets muddled. And as a Christian, you are an interpreter. It's your job to interpret heaven's truths, but into the language of earth. And to do that job effectively, you too have to be proficient in two languages. You've got to speak the truths of heaven. But you've got to do so in ways that people will hear and understand. And yet, this is not as easy as it might seem. For there are some Christians today who know very little of the language of heaven. They've lost touch with God's truth and God's perspective. Their Bible has been accumulating dust. Oh, they're quick to read the latest blog, but not the book of books. Thus, their message is a legalistic gospel or a prosperity gospel or a social gospel, or a politicized gospel, or a feel-good gospel. They don't preach the gospel of reconciliation that Paul preached and that we are called to be ministers of. And the methods they use are more man-made than spiritual. Pressure rather than love. Hype rather than holiness. They're more into marketing than ministering. You know, some Christians have neglected heaven's language. But other Christians have forgotten how to speak the language of earth. They've lived in the bubble for too long. They've enjoyed the comfort of hanging out with the people who believe the way they do and who share the same values as they do. They're so socially isolated, they now have trouble relating to non-Christians. There's an awkwardness. As a foreign ambassador, you've got to stay in touch with home but you also have to be able to relate to the trends and dialect of the land to which you've been dispatched. Don't barricade yourself in the bubble. Some Christians haven't had a conversation with a lost person about spiritual things in years. In fact, if given the opportunity, they would forget how to relate totally. Pentecostal preacher Donald G., he once wrote this. He said, it's possible to live such an otherworldly life, to get into an unearthly, abnormal condition where you may be very spiritual, 
But you are not a scrap of good as an interpreter. You have gotten out of touch with men. Are you a good interpreter? You need to be. Then Donald G., he gave an example. He said, I was attending a street meeting, listening to a fine young woman give her testimony. She was full of the Holy Spirit, on fire for God, had a real desire to win souls. But she was talking to a bunch of coal miners and drunkards and saying, dear ones this and dear ones that. They were not dear ones by a long way. And they didn't like being called dear ones. You see, she had lived in the sugary sweet atmosphere of Pentecostal prayer meetings and had lost contact with the world. And friends, this can happen to us. When the church retreats into our spiritual bunker and closes ourselves off to the rest of the world, we stop coming across as authentic to people. We might be sincere, but we seem plastic and phony. We're not speaking the language other people are speaking. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul calls us a peculiar people. The word peculiar is an old King James word, which means different or special. Paul is saying that we're to be different, but in an attractive way. Different in how we treat others, in our outlook on life in the honesty of our business practices and the healthy values that we hold dear, in the joy that radiates from our life. We're not to be peculiar in the sense of being weird or odd or eccentric. And yet some Christians use Titus 2 verse 14 to justify being culturally backwards. Often church folks hold to traditions that alienate them from the mainstream. And think they're being holy and separate from the world. In reality, they're just being weird. I grew up in the 1960s. And I went to a church that frowned on men wearing long hair and bell-bottom jeans. For some reason, a buzz cut and a white shirt was more spiritual. But says who? The Bible doesn't have a Christian dress code. It was just a man-made tradition. And it prohibited our church from reaching the kids who needed the gospel. Today as a pastor, I'm always asking myself, what traditions am I and our church holding on to that are hindering us from reaching this current generation? I say throw it out. If it's hindering us from getting the gospel to folks, we need to throw it out. Jesus told us to be in the world, but not of the world. We're in the world. That, that means that we're to fit in culturally and dress fashionably and speak normally. But we're not of the world, which means we need to have godly priorities. We need to stand up morally and spiritually. Of course, where the culture violates our convictions, we have to take a stand for God. But we should be fluent in two languages. The language of heaven and the language of earth. Years ago, I ran across a story that illustrates what happens when believers in Jesus isolate themselves in their Christian compound, in their little bubble, and they grow ingrown. They even develop their own vocabulary that no one else really understands. It's a form of Christianese, you might say. Listen to this funny article. It's entitled, They Speak With Other Tongues. It kind of illustrates what I'm trying to say. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth it. Have you ever been saved 
A rather wide-eyed young fellow startled me with his question as we waited for the bus. He handed me a booklet with a picture of hell on the front. Well, sure, I replied. Once when I was nine years old, I was swimming at Jones Beach, and a strong undertow began dragging me out to sea. My uncle heard my cry for help, and no, no, he interrupted. Redeemed. Have you ever been redeemed? You know, reborn, washed in the blood. I responded, what in the world are you talking about? He looked me square in the eye. Have you ever been convicted? No, I've never even been arrested. It was as if we were speaking a different language. Can we have lunch sometime, he asked. Oh, that would be fine. He looked harmless enough, but he was an unusual fellow and quite difficult to understand. Well, that Wednesday, I had lunch with Ed. He was a little late, but he explained to me that he had been having some quiet time. Quiet time, I asked. What do you mean, quiet time? Well, each day before lunch, I have some time in my prayer closet, he responded. I was puzzled. Do you pray in a closet at work? He answered, no, it's in my car. A closet in your car? He changed the subject. Like the first day I met him, he left me confused. This Ed is quite a unique fellow, I thought. Well, as we parted that day, Ed gave me a little booklet that explained how I could have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I read it. I understood it. And I knew it was exactly what I needed. That night, I surrendered my life to Jesus and was born again, as the booklet stated. Two days later, I told Ed, and he was overjoyed. Immediately, Ed urged me, Bob, you need to find a good body. I was surprised at his suggestion, but it sounded to me like a good idea. I took Ed's advice and combed the local health clubs for an attractive woman. When I met Denise, I knew she was the one. We began to date, and soon she became a believer too. Ed was so excited. He told us that it was crucial that we get planted. Sometimes it's hard to understand this guy, I confided in Denise. I told Ed I wasn't quite sure what he meant by planted. He replied, committed. You know, you both need to be committed now that you know Jesus. Wait a minute, I protested. Just because I don't know what planted means doesn't mean I'm nuts. Trusting Jesus is the most sane thing I've ever done. Well, Ed's patience was growing thin. He continued to explain. He said, Bob and Denise, now you don't, don't you get it? You need to now get plugged in. <laughs> no, it was pretty obvious we didn't get it. I had to miss church the next Sunday, but Ed and I had breakfast on Monday morning, and he was filled, he filled me on what happened. He said, God moved yesterday. God was really moving. Where is he now, I pleaded. I was just getting to know him, and he's gone? Ed answered, no, no, Bob. God hasn't gone anywhere. I was so relieved. But Denise was at church, and boy, was she on fire. Fire? Denise got burned? What happened? Is she okay? No, Bob. Denise is just fine. You just don't understand. That was an understatement, I thought. Ed sighed. 
Bob, can I walk in the light with you? Of course we can walk in the light, Ed. It's daytime. Well, it's been over two years since I was saved and convicted. Now I'm planted, committed, plugged in, and I found a good body. God is moving. I've been getting to know him, and Denise and I are still on fire. But I have developed one new problem. It seems now that all my old friends just don't understand me anymore. When I share with them about my redemption, my being washed in the blood, and that I'm following the Lamb, my former friends just tune me out. I guess they're just convicted when they see that I'm on fire. You see, in a multitude of ways, we as Christians can alienate ourselves from non-Christians for the very people we're trying to reach. Whenever we speak to unbelievers in trite cliches or religious language and religious buzzwords, you know, we separate ourselves from them. We need to speak in ways that people can understand. But it's not just our lingo that alienates unbelievers. Sometimes we engage in practices that only are understood in-house, you might say. And when we act on them in front of non-Christians, they can get at the wrong conclusions. I once had a pastor friend who I hated to eat lunch with in a public place. Because every time this guy saw me, no matter where we were, he'd greet me with this big, huge hug. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not against hugging. I like hugs. I'm okay with hugs. I'm not against members of God's family hugging. In church, where a hug is properly understood, a hug is a meaningful form of communication. But trust me, in Midtown Atlanta, where Atlanta's pride parade parade originates, two men hugging... When you see that, you don't think, oh my, look at that wonderful Christian fellowship. That's not what you're thinking. My point is, is that we need to respect the social mores that govern normal behavior. For when we do stuff that folks interpret as weird or different, it drives them away from the gospel they so desperately need. It's been said, the world has more winnable people than ever before but it's possible to come out of a ripe field empty-handed. We need to be smart and strategic in our approach to sharing the gospel. Are you communicating with people in ways that they can understand and see the attractiveness of the gospel we offer? We'll win more people if we present God's truths in compelling ways. It's interesting to me that in verse 19, Paul says that God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The word of reconciliation. God reconciling the world involved the coming and cross of Jesus. God's salvation plan was excruciating and costly. It required great effort from our Savior. How ironic that now God uses something as simple as a word to finish the deal. You know, he could have used a giant lasso from heaven to corral people, you know, and pull them to himself. Or he could use the cosmic shepherd's staff to grab people by the neck and yank them back to him. 
or a stun gun to drop them and drag us back, or human flypaper to catch us against our will. But God uses a word, a simple word, an invite. God restores us to friendly relations by speaking to us a word of reconciliation. It can come from a preacher or from a friend or from a random person. But God arrests us with a word. He grabs our attention. We wrestle with that word. We can't escape it. It makes sense to us. It rings true to us. Finally, we act on that word. We open up our hearts and we give our lives to Jesus. And this is what makes our ministry so crucial. For to us, God has committed this word of reconciliation. Are you sharing that word with the lost people around you? should be. This is why we can't just sit back in our Christian biosphere, in our bubble, insulated from the needs around us, sealed off from people's pain and not speak up. God loves the lizard-like folks in your world. You could say God has literally been dying to save them, and now he's pleading in you for them to be saved. Are you giving God a voice? God has given you and me the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of kissing lizards. Let me ask you, how many lizards have you kissed lately? Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Sandy Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Sandy's teaching ministry by visiting sandyadams.org.